I think the march towards real time has changed a lot of attitudes in banks towards how they see their legacy systems. So legacy systems have tended to work in batch rather than in real time. And open banking really exacerbates this because whether you're retail or corporate, there's an expectation of absolute real-time process. Large back office core banking systems that have been sitting in, a, in an office for 40 years are, are now being wholesale converted and reimagined and engineered to suit the real-time, always-on world of payment. Welcome to the Innovation Spark podcast by Vitusa X Labs. This is a series of discussions looking at tech-enabled innovation and how it's reshaping our world. I'm your host, Stephen Wood, and today we're broadcasting from the Vatusa office, which is at the intersection of East London and the City of London, which is pretty apt because what we're talking about today is open banking, where new technology is helping to redefine an industry that's been prevalent in this city for centuries. And it's my pleasure today to be joined by Richard Ransom, who's our Head of Payments at Vatusa. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and so the topic for discussion today is open banking, uh, and that, that's pretty prevalent. Am I right in thinking that banks are focusing more on open banking as a, a compliance tick rather than an innovation uh, tactic at the moment? Yes, I think in most areas where open banking is now operating, it's been because the government has told them to do so. So UK, la- nine largest banks had to comply with the rules of the government. So the government decided there wasn't enough competition in banking, so open banking became that. Running parallel to that was the second payment services directive in Europe, which had a similar job to do. So these are making banks do something. It's the catchy title, PSD2. Yes. Fantastic. And and the cost of this is going to be significant for banks. And it's with any sort of uh, compliance initiative. Banks uh, are kind of um, resentful about paying out for uh, for compliance. So how are they monetizing the investment in compliance? Well, interestingly, at the start of open banking, when it was a, you're going to do it, mm-hmm. then the retail side of the bank generally had to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So retail customers got a lot of the benefit of open banking. In fact, the corporate side of banking was scoped out. Right. Things like open banking in the UK and the payment services directive too. Where we've seen open banking starting to foment in other parts of the world, the focus is still very much on retail customers. And I think a lot of that's because they're just looking at what's happened in the UK and certainly in Australia. The Australian model is based on the application programming interfaces that are used in the UK, more or less the data rules. And if you look in the Middle East, they're using EU's data protection as a, as a model. So a lot of this is around exactly what the retail customer wants. So it's a boring spend for a bank. So they've now got to get their back office updated as well. So a lot of the legacy systems aren't very good at real-time, always-on st- systems, which is what you need when you're providing a service for a retail customer. And as I mentioned, data privacy is very important, so you've got to get the identity and access management bits right. So, so it's a fundamental change then, yeah, uh, and a significant investment. But it also, am I right in thinking it also has the potential to lead to a completely different experience for, for retail customers, but also a different role for banks to play in the value chain? Yeah, absolutely. And I think where banks have succeeded, it's, you know, there are there's some outliers like BBVA mm-hmm. in Spain. They've always sort of led ahead DBS in Singapore. Now, they've seen this as an opportunity not just to um, provide another channel where they have to. It's how, how do you innovate? How do you collaborate? How do you build products that you could never build before? Or how do you build products that may have been more difficult to do because the technology and experience you have inside your bank doesn't quite fit that model? So how do you improve, for example, onboarding a customer? How do you make that really simple? And if you look to a fintech like TransferWise, where you can just show 
your driving license to the camera on your laptop or on your mobile phone, then you know the onboarding process is just taken out of that. So where do you get that technology from if you're a bank? Well, you can look to a to a fintech. So that collaboration is coming out, but. In those banks, they're making a success of it. Their collaboration really works, and they can start to see other ways of potentially monetizing it, even for the retail space. So, I think the way you're describing it, we've got some people who've really understood the opportunity and have grasped it and are driving it forward, uh, and there are those that may be a little bit more reluctant. What would you say the key differences is between the two banks in those categories? What, what I don't. I think. I, I think. I think there is just a top-down. Strategy. There's whether you want to become a digital bank and react to, to the needs and the requirements and and how the demography of your customers is changing and how you know how do I attract customers so the millennials and I'm doing the fingers in the air thing but how how do I attract those younger customers who are who are looking at Monzo um, Starling and banks like that so in in the office yesterday we asked a couple of our millennial colleagues young if they had colleagues, yeah. young colleagues if they had credit cards and it was amazing the response and no no <laughs> one guy had a had a credit card just because he had to have one to hire a car but the rest of their spending is all done mm. through their bank account and they want these things to be instant and on devices so where there's a strategy to make sure they're bringing in those customers and they can see there's a threat from the smaller players that's where you see that sort of impetus at the other end there are banks who was who are blinkered and their heads are just in Let's comply. Let's just do what we have to and come out again. They don't understand that customer profile or base. Yeah. So uh, I think if you ask any bank, okay, uh, uh, do you have a strategy to become sort of a next-gen digital bank? Everyone will be nodding wildly at board level. But it seems as if there's a difference in the level of commitment to actually making that a reality. Then. Yeah, and just and just making your app a bit nicer and improving the UX doesn't solve that problem. That doesn't make you a digital bank. I think there's a lot more to the other services you can provide. Yeah. How do I become more pervasive? How do I become the everyday bank? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, to become that paradigm, you have to offer much, much more functionality and connectivity. Yeah, and and products as well. So as a bank, you may not have an appetite for high-risk loans or short-term loans or, or any sort of an area like that that doesn't quite fit your profile. But you might have a fintech partner who is willing to do that. So you can push your customers towards a trusted partner where you're in control of the dialogue between you and that third party. But they're providing a product that you don't want to provide. And, that, and that's very valid. So that's the way you put together almost like a, a holistic portfolio, playing to the strengths of the various elements to actually come with that complete offering to, to customers. Yeah. So if you look at Starling, they have uh, they've linked up with a with a mortgage provider because they don't do mortgages. That's not that's not their thing. But that works because as a Starling account holder, I've I've normally got a Starling mortgage because that comes through my single channel. Oh, and we've talked about um, the UK leading the way, which is in, in this day and age, this is always a nice yeah. thing to be able to say in one area. Yeah. How is open banking being embraced by other areas in the world? So, um, as I mentioned before, Australia is going is going full open banking, but only on the data side, so no payment initiation, which doesn't mean that banks can't offer those services, but that's, that's how we're looking at it. Um, the Middle East is really embracing it, so Bahrain is already live with their open banking scheme. UAE will follow soon, and we're very close, and there are banks already offering open banking APIs in, in the market. We've seen some moves in Saudi Arabia as well to start looking at that, and we know some of the banks there are trying to push that. So in those areas, a lot of it is because regulation is going to happen. In the US, the Fed are consulting and looking at open banking. In Canada, much further along the journey, 
And all of these places have the building blocks in place. They have a solid data protection set of regulations that is designed to help the customer. So, so is regulation in some areas actually going to act as the catalyst for the adoption of open banking in areas where there may be no need to comply with regulation at all then? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, any bank in the world today could offer open banking if they wanted to. They could have an open API to their customer. Just those data protection rules mean that people are more likely to use those services. So adoption is going to be driven by those. So if you look at Papida in Canada, the whole you know, the whole point of that is letting the data owner have control over who gets the, the data. But if that's a third party that I want to connect into my bank mm. without my bank giving permission or having contractual relationship, that's, that's fine with me as long as those data protections are all in place and the data is being used properly and appropriately in all circumstances. So yes, definitely the regulation is becoming a catalyst. Fantastic. So, so in this situation, regulation is doing more than just protecting uh, people uh, and, and keeping finances safer. It, it's actually acting as the, the catalyst for innovation, which is very yeah. unusual. Yes, exactly. And I think people are looking at the UK because we're the first to do it and how that's going. You know, there are over 100 third-party providers now attached to open banking who can access bank accounts on behalf of customers. There's a good mix there of account information services where... The service is about data. It's about the transactions that you use and providing better services with a holistic view of where my spending is, how I do things. That can be used to do things as diverse as credit ratings or just run a personal finance management app. Yeah. And we know that many banks, and we're working with many banks to, to create AI-driven personal financial managers at the moment. It seems like everyone has one. But if you think about the, the consumer, I'm only really going to want one. Exactly. And so it becomes a, it becomes a battle about CX as well in, in your apps. And those personal finance managers, there's no point just getting the view from one single bank. That's you know, it's a good yeah, starting point. You need the view from every bank yeah. and all the accounts I use, whether that's a credit card or a loan. If I've got a view of where all of my money is, even if that's just my mortgage account as well, that's going to give me a great insight and, and help to build other applications. So this sort of reflects one of the things we've seen in wealth management as a move towards sort of holistic wealth management. Yeah. You, you may only have £1.50 in one account, but if in an account with another provider, you might have several million. Uh, and the advice you give to someone with uh, several million and £1.50 is really different to the advice yeah, exactly. you give someone with, with just £1.50. So getting this holistic view is, is kind of mandatory uh, if we're going to provide valid advice and actually become that person's go-to bank. And this is really interesting because all of this personal financial management piece and what you're saying about wealth management, this is what businesses do. This is what corporates do all mm-hmm. the time. This is cash management. Yeah. Multi-bank views of money. Where's my money today? What's my cash position? How can I make my payment processes more efficient? This is what businesses do today. But right in the beginning you said that uh, that commercial banking was out of the equation for open banking. So uh, are we going to see a shift, an adoption of the technologies and and, uh, the tactics that are being applied to retail, uh, applied to corporates? Absolutely. It's route one for monetization of this investment made in open banking. So why are positioning these services to corporates going to generate more cash than what banks have traditionally done, try to mine that retail customer base? Because a lot of the problem with connecting a bank to a corporate is in the connectivity piece. So if you want to direct what's known as host-to-host connection, mm-hmm. that's quite invasive for both ends. It's quite a lot of work for a corporate to put potentially firewalls in, sort of lease lines, and all this sort of technology, which costs a lot of money to run. The other alternatives are using SWIFT, and that's really valid for things like international payments, but if you're just doing cash and transaction balances, having a full-on SWIFT network connection is very expensive. Mm-hmm. APIs are very simple to do. So they're simple to create and plumb into back-end systems. They are simple to secure. So it's another way of connecting your customer. 
and potentially where your customer hasn't wanted to go on that sticky host-to-host route before, if you say, well, here's an open API, yeah. do it this way, that, that makes it more interesting. And if you can then, using the aggregation that open banking allows, start to funnel all of their balance and transaction reporting through your API, rather than making them connect to 10 different banks, that's going to really work as well. So, so you become the hub. Yeah, so you're going to make money from corporates in different ways if you're a bank in this space. And it might be money that went to third-party TMS providers. So a lot of this is about how you bring that back in. But also, now you've got a lot of information you never had before. So where you have a multi-banked corporate and a lot of the flows weren't going through your accounts, you've no idea where the money is, how much money they've got with other parties and where, where the real money sits. Mm. You might only find out that your relationship is going a bit west and fees are perhaps a lot higher than some other bank when the, the balance slowly drifts off your account or suddenly overnight drifts off your account and never comes back again. If you're offering that front window using APIs as your service and the data is being aggregated through the bank, then you're getting a much better view of where the money is. And you can help them make decisions and all those things. So you get leading indicators of churn, you get more yep. ability to provide advisory services. Exactly. And, and to build a stickier relationship. But in this scenario, we could potentially have all of the banks that we that we use as, as a corporate offering this service. Yeah. So you end up then having to balance the, the offers. So you become it becomes almost like a marketplace for banking yeah. services. So doesn't that play more to a, sort of a third-party aggregator model than actually having these individual hubs provided by individual banks? So uh, there's going to be a battle, and, and banks today have an appetite about being an overlay bank, which is mm. kind of the model we're talking about, which tends to be quite clunky and based on more traditional methods like SWIFT. But yes, you know, there's going to be a mix. You're going to have some, some banks who will happily look to be that aggregated because it's now available and it's easy to do and the ones who just want to stick with the old ways of providing those connectivity or don't have the appetite to do the aggregation and feel that they're probably big enough and they've got enough mm. customer or cash management isn't their thing they're not a huge you know they're not a pool they're just maybe just a correspondent in, in one particular region so for those banks what sort of value props will they be offering in, in the future when they're not providing insight when they're not providing corporates of health with it, it's just it, if they if they have to offer apis it's just going to be a connectivity play and they may be connecting, they might be bilateral connections with other banks, but they're going to lose out. In some ways, it'll be their best CX wins because as a retail customer of a bank, I've become very used to things being always on, no, immediately available. I could pay you even up to £10,000 right now, nice. and it would be in your account by the time I finish this sentence. There you go, it's in the account. I can do that, and I can do that any time of the day or night, mm-hmm. and I can do it from a smartphone. Yep. Business doesn't work like that. And traditionally, you've had to go to lots of interface. So if I want to do that from three banks, that's potentially three bank interfaces I have to go to, and potentially my treasury management system as well. And the banks aren't open 24-7 for the types of transactions I want to do, even though my business is operating around the globe. So I think there's an expectation from retail, from people who use retail banking, which is everyone, that corporate banking should be exactly the same. So it's pretty much like the model um, when Amazon disrupted retail. Uh, we were always talking to clients around, well, actually, if Amazon are providing this to customers, why can't I provide this to my clients and my colleagues? So banks are looking at what's happening in the retail space. Uh, and so customers are looking at what's happening in their retail banking lives and saying, well, actually, the technology exists for this to, to be applied to, to corporate. So the first banks that apply that will get a competitive advantage and, and will steal customers. So, yeah, interesting. We were speaking to a um, multinational corporate in Europe recently who came to us to say, we've heard about PSD2. We would like to connect to our banks directly. 
So we don't want to go through a third party. How, how do we do that? So which is interesting. So PSD2 is about third party access to accounts. It's not really about direct connectivity. But two of their banks offered a commercial API. Mm -hmm. So um, and this corporate's biggest problem was they needed to have cash positions immediately because their cash forecasting is quite complicated. So big, uh, big manufacturer. They need to know where the money is at any point in time around the world. And the question that the CFO got from the CEO, most of all, when he got a phone call, was how much money do we have right now in A, B, or C, or just in general? How much money is in our bank account? I'll tell you in 24 hours isn't the right answer. Exactly. I'll tell you in 24 hours, and that will involve someone whose job it is basically to print off uh, bank statements and pass data into Excel mm -hmm. to do that, or to go into the TMS and add extra information, upload files. So through the traditional methods, like SWIFT or e-banking, cash positions available twice a day. Start of the day, intraday. Mm -hmm. And what this corporate had said to their banks is like, can you, can you give me immediately? He said, well, we haven't. So they said have we, we, they've got an API that can give them that. So after building one connection, they've asked us to build another connection to banks. So now we have two APIs. And we can give an instant cash position, but now it's getting a bit messy for the corporate. How so? Because now it's good for two banks. How do they do it for five more banks? So you know, we could build an integration layer to manage all the APIs, and that's not a difficult job. Mm -hmm. It sounds like connecting, having handling the bank connectivity for 10 banks is difficult, and in the old world of Swift and host-to-host -host and e-banking, it was. APIs are very simple. It's not the barrier it was. But we ended up talking to one of their banks and saying, Look, did, did you know that your multinational corporate is doing this one connection because they want all of the ca cash balances? And that started another another conversation. So it, it seems interesting that the conversations that we were having you know, with banks and expecting to have with banks, we're actually seeing the flip side of that equation. The corporate's actually coming to us and saying, okay, we want to plug in. So we want to sort of kick off that conversation and hold the, the control over the feeds that are coming yeah. in. Yeah, so having a having a, a large treasury practice and a big bunch of customers mm. in um, globally who are corporates is really helpful for us to find out what the problems are. Because banks don't often know what their corporates are doing, especially multi-bank corporates. I think the trend is towards banks seeing this aggregation as a as a serious play. But and, and would they see corporates, multi-bank corporates who are doing this their own accord, would they see this as, as maybe a, a threat to you know, the control they hold? Because you know, it used to be you know, data is power. Um, if I understand where you are, I can provide advice and I can kind of lock you in as well. If yeah. suddenly I become a, a commodity provider, so all I'm doing is I will offer a, a financial product, but the ability to move funds around from different products to products and banks to banks becomes a lot easier because I've got much more transparency. The, the business model that banks have with, more, with corporate clients it will, could fundamentally change. Yeah, and, and it started to do that when the single euro payment area came in and low-value domestic payments just became a commodity. And yeah. where banks had made money before, charging on transactions, just couldn't do that. It's too much competition because you can send a payment from Portugal to, to Germany, Portugal to France, Portugal to Portugal for the same amount of money. So they have to become better at providing products, and some of that is CX and always on and more information and you know um, better management of bank accounts. These things really matter because they can't rely on those old ways of making money, just loads of transactions because that doesn't work mm -hmm. in a modern world. So it, it, I'm getting some echoes of the past and I'm thinking about the, the, the telco uh, business yeah. model. So if you think about the conversations that we always have with telcos, it's all around how do we differentiate our service. Yeah. Uh, we, are, you know, we are the backbone of the internet. If we went away, there would be no digital, but we're not the people that are making the, the high margin um, yeah. revenue. 
So if we're being forced into a commodity position, even though we're, you know, we're necessary for this business model, it's not a nice place to be. It's not a great thing to have to report to your shareholders. So is there a situation where banks could become sort of the telcos of commerce, providing nothing but holding pots and connectors? Absolutely. So becoming a passive payment processor. Just, as you said, becoming a connectivity. Because in the new world of API connectivity, where payment initiation is available through any regulated third party, the bank could very easily become a passive payment process. And as you said, the big danger of that is just the commoditization service. So banks have to work beyond that. So the other products which they provide are the ones which are going to define them. So outside of how good the cash management they provide is, what else can they do? And some of it will be around cost, but that stickiness is important because when you lose something as invasive as a host-to-host connection with a lease line and all those things that go around it, what have you got to, to keep the customer on side? So the relationship becomes much more important, the products you provide much more important, and innovation becomes really important as well. So we've kind of come full circle back to this idea that open banking allows you to go out to third parties to dynamically pull together your portfolio of services. So on the one hand, we've got the the payment side of the spectrum, which could become commodified, or probably will become commodified, but the mirror side of open banking means it's much easier for us to create that differentiating portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been talking about getting the CX right and differentiating with the right mix of portfolio products. Um, so that's all around the, the front office experience. It's all around um, how we engage with our clients. If we flip that, what sort of changes are we seeing around the back office as a consequence of open banking? Now, I think the march towards real time has changed a lot of attitudes in banks towards how they see the legacy systems. So legacy systems have tended to work in batch rather than real time. And open banking really exacerbates this because whether you're retail or corporate, there's an expectation of absolute real time processing. That real time processing goes right into the core banking system. So the balance has to be updated on your account immediately if some money's gone out because, and especially with a the corporate, there's a big mm-hmm. sums of money and you don't want to go out overdrawn you want to be able to hold the cash position and properly report that. So we're seeing a large transformation of back office, and this is generally built around API as well, and microservices. So large back office core banking systems that have been sitting in, a, in an office for 40 years are, mm-hmm. are now being wholesale converted and reimagined and engineered to suit the real-time, always-on world of payments. And this is being done via microservices. So sometimes the microservices are being used as a wrapper around that big bit of core, because sometimes the banks are very reluctant to touch that back yeah, office system. Yeah. And a lot of that is just to enable those systems to act more real time. The back office processes are still happening in COBOL because they're very reliable, but the communication to the outside world and the front channel is, is done via API and microservices for speed and reliability. So it, it's a wrap rather than a replace strategy. Yeah, a, a lot for a lot of banks, replaces the way to go. And if you are a new bank, and this is an advantage of a digital bank, you you're starting from scratch, you don't have that core system so we've seen people like Thought Machine coming out with completely cloud-based core banking systems and if you are a established bank looking to build a digital brand you may go to an organization like that to build your new bank because you want it to be always on real time and not have the legacy so we've spent a lot of time as Vichusa helping organizations rebuild their back office systems and do legacy modernization Mm -hmm. and a lot of cases there's so much redundant code there that's slowing them down, they don't realise. So it's a great opportunity to to just bring efficiency into your systems. And we're seeing banks starting to do that a bit more now, because they have to, because real time is 
is the expectation, and it's across retail, corporate, it's where um, real-time payments are starting to invade point of sale as well. Yeah. So disintermediating cards, which is a, which is good for banks because they want those transactions and not to be giving interchange fees to the big processors. If they want to offer those services and be able to offer real-time at point of sale, the back office has to be able to deal with that as well. And that's a fundamental change for banks because you know, whenever you sit down and talk about a transformational project with a bank, uh, they're always nodding and smiling until you say, and of course this will have an impact on the core systems. Yeah. Uh, they tend to be a little bit reticent about uh, doing anything that could uh, fiddle with something that is older than you and I put together. I was at Cybos recently and had a, a great range of views on, on back office. And whenever you mentioned core, people would either coil up, a turtle, yeah. a turtle <laughs> or they would be open, or they'd say, right, well, our strategy today is we are looking at modernising everything except for the core. The core is going to stay on premise because it's very important and we need to think about that. For the rest of it, it's fair game. So people are moving this stuff to the cloud, you know, it's, it's they're modernising it, but core tends to be one of those funny ones. But I think five years' time, this will be a completely different attitude. Five years ago, people weren't talking about moving any banking services into the cloud. No, no, it would have been seen. Uh, Even a private cloud, but now, but now banks are talking about putting it into public cloud. And that's because it's good, it's safe, reliable, all these and things proven, and scalable and yeah. proven. But, you know, there's still... And there's a lot of uh, legacy mentality still in banks, and I think that that's starting to fade away over time because the way that people bank has changed. Batch-based processes aren't aren't the norm. And even if you look at something like accounts payable as a process, which used to be big batch-based process, do one payment, run a month, send a batch file to the bank, they would process it. The attitudes now are changing. People are expecting to be paid immediately, and e-invoicing, trade finance needs real-time payments. You need the money to go and pay and you don't need to stack invoices at the end of the month and you can design better strategies for, for paying your suppliers and you can control your cash flow a lot better using single immediate payments. Payroll as well, traditionally everyone gets paid on the same day of the month no matter what. The shift now is, so people are starting to take sort of finance on their payroll, they're starting to ask to be paid early and get loans. So lots of organisations are springing up to help businesses help their employees manage their money better over the month to, to manage taking the concept of season ticket loans which have been around for, for yeah, years exactly, in the UK exactly. and then applying that to uh, to other areas so that's also another opportunity where you can provide benefits to uh, to colleagues but also potentially another another revenue stream for the business yeah and then you know why why not and there's no reason why you shouldn't ask your employee what day of the month they'd like to be paid on but big things like mortgages and the way that they like to spend their money across the month, and the way their utility bills are, are sorted to be able to spread out the risk. So it's a totally bespoke approach to finance, yeah. not driven by the limitations of corporate processes or banking systems. Yeah. So the applications at the corporate end are moving this way. Even the big ERP are moving away from the concept of big batch-based processing of things like accounts payable, millions of payments in one run. And there's a bit of big risk to doing that as well. So yes, it's all you know. This is all change. And the back office needs to be able to reflect. So I think you know, during this uh, this conversation, we, we've looked at the shift between banks viewing open banking as a compliance only uh, initiative to something that becomes a springboard for innovation. We looked at the application of open banking for retail relationships, but then we looked at how banks and corporates were exploring the potential of open banking to help them first of all, manage their liquidity more effectively, but also drive more uh, differentiating services from corporate customers who've always paid more. If we think about the, the future of, uh, of open banking, are we seeing anything really radical 
uh, in the payments area. What's unexpected for me is how long it's taken the corporate side of the bank to catch up. Right. Also, I thought the retail would catch up more quickly with open banking, but I think with initiatives like Pay Later, point of sale microfinance, we're starting to see a change there. So banks trying to grab a bit more of the point of sale action. Okay. Where fintechs have started to offer pro- other products, so there's a there's definitely a competition area there. So they could be disintermediated then at exactly. the point of sale. Exactly. So they're trying to just get back into that into that thing. So um, the attack of open banking on cards is starting to pick up now. I was expecting that a bit earlier, but that's you know that's I think another big area. So that's the case with many tech-enabled innovation tactics. We always believe that they'll be adopted sooner than they are because they've got such a strong business case. But there are always friction points within organisations and within the technology itself to prevent that. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Rich. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and learning about open banking, payments, and the disruption in the banking space across retail and corporate. Thank you very much. Thank you.